Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian. Those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Well, before we start the show, can I just say as a podcaster how terrible traffic was <laughs> on the way here? How traffic how terrible traffic was? Yes, well, I walked to the studio, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but but I saw the traffic. Mm-hmm. And can I just tell you in minute detail and how it was? <laughs> It was bad. Oh, yeah, it was bad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, that's what every podcast listener loves hearing about. <laughs> it's how bad the traffic was getting here. Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. I'm Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. And this is part three of four on the Stooges. So when we last left the Stooges in the year 1970, they had just recorded one of the finest rock and roll albums of the decade in Los Angeles, and the recording of this album also coincided with the Stooges dabbling in hard drugs for the first time. Dabbling. <laughs> At this point, I mean... They're full-on rel- professionals. I would t- <laughs> At this point, I mean, relative to later drug use, it's still dabbling. Oh yeah, it's just a hobby right now. <laughs> No, it was amidst this period of increasing debauchery that the Stooges went out on tour with two albums worth of material at the ready, and the result was a revolution for live performance. They could finally perform for more than 15 minutes. I mean, they had two albums, two short albums, but still 35 minutes. But luckily, like while they were touring, they were writing songs. Yeah. So no more like last minute hotel songwriting anymore. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this was like, they were actually professional musicians at this point. Perhaps the best known example of this time, as far as live performance goes when it comes to the Stooges, is the Cincinnati Summer Pop Rock Festival, which was actually televised, as we will now hear. Since we broke away for our message... Iggy has been in the crowd and out again three different times. They seem to be enjoying it, and so does he. (laughs) The kids seem to be having a good time. (laughs) I love that, like, that tiny little passive-aggressive seem. (laughs) They seem to be enjoying it, and so does he. That's Jack Les Cooley. Jack Le- who's Jack Les Cooley? The announcer from the Jackie Gleason show. The announcer for the So what what do you mean the announcer from the yeah. ja- like the Jackie Gleason yeah. show? <laughs> Don't try to take his job. <laughs> He's long dead. 
All right, so that was at the Summer Pop Rock Festival, right? The the one that they held in Cincinnati. And it was televised, which is something that Iggy and the Stooges found out when they got there. Now, was this televised like just in Cincinnati or was this national? No, oh, this is all over the country. It's coast to coast. Couldn't imagine <laughs> the fucking pressure. They had phenomenal ratings, though. And like much later, uh, Iggy and uh, the Stooges were asked, like, did you guys feel like weird? Did you feel uncomfortable? And they're just like, no, we we didn't care. Yeah. They didn't care. I, they say they didn't care, but goddamn, I could only imagine. I mean, some people get charged by shit like that. Like, some people, when they find out, like, man, we're going to be televised, like, let's fucking do it. But I would be scared out of my fucking wits. Ah, it's nothing. Yeah, I'm sure. I've, I've been on TV. <laughs> Once. I remember the first time we did a last stream on the left, I had to imagine that the entire audience were dogs <laughs> because that was the only way I could stop freaking out. Well, I, just a beer would be helpful. Yeah. And I, well, I had a few of those as well. <laughs> okay. So they're playing. This is like June 13th, 1970. Uh, Iggy wore a dog collar, no shirt. And he kept jumping into the crowd because, you know, he always wanted to be close to the crowd. Of course. He took a jar of peanut butter that someone had and just started smearing it on him and then trying to fling it into the crowd. I wonder about, because everyone kind of takes the peanut butter story as just like fact. Why did that person bring peanut butter to the concert? I don't know. <laughs> I want to talk to I, that person. Well, you know, it was like a festival. There were campgrounds, so they probably brought like a snack. Okay, yeah, yeah, just a full jar of peanut butter. So we know now. <laughs> now we know. And he's singing. He's in the crowd, and you could probably you could see snippets of this on YouTube. He's singing like, "I feel all right. I feel all right." And then you can hear a girl from the distance say, "Are you all right?" <laughs> Like, bitch, did you just hear? <laughs> I feel all right. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so at one point, he's in the audience. He jumped on them a few times, like trying to get up. And he was hoisted up with his feet on their hands. This is a moment in rock and roll history that like, luckily is recorded. You can yeah. go on YouTube and watch this whole performance. I mean, watching Iggy Pop walk from hand to hand to hand. I mean, it's like, I mean, people talk about like rock God. They just sort of throw that term around. But at this in this performance, like he does actually look celestial. He does. Uh, he walks a tiny bit, though. I think <laughs> it's enough. I think a lot of the stories uh, make it more grander than really it really is. Mm -hmm. And that they make it seem like he was Jesus. <laughs> He's like the father of crowd surfing. Easily walking from foot to, from hand to hand to hand. It was like two steps. It was two steps. But then but they were also able to capture one of the most iconic photos in rock and That's roll right. history of Iggy Pop standing on the standing on people's hands and pointing out and into the crowd right it's so cool it's the cool i mean yeah it's one of the the coolest uh, photographs of a rock musician ever taken and the great thing about this is that uh when they asked uh, when they asked iggy like what was going in your mind when you decided to do something so spectacular like that and he said quote this could be cool <laughs> he was also on acid yeah of course he, yeah that i mean that was kind of a given at that point in the stooges career but like you know some people say that this was the gig where crowd surfing was invented. That's right. And that's amazing. Like, yeah. To, to actually, like, I'm sure somebody did it before, but this was the first time that it was done on a huge scale where, you know, thousands upon thousands of people saw it. 
Yeah, yeah. Crowd surfing looks cool. I'll never do it. No. I don't feel like people <laughs> reaching into places. Yeah. It's <laughs> Funny thing about this is that uh, around the same time, maybe a couple years later, David Bowie tried doing the same <laughs> yes. thing. Just fell flat on his fucking face. And Iggy was there. He saw it go down. He's like, you need a strong core, David. <laughs> you really do. Yes. Like to do something like that, you have to have an amazingly strong core. And, and you know, Iggy Pop is like a, just one of those like naturally muscular dudes. Yeah. It just has that fucking strength to do it. David Bowie is a slight little man. Yeah, yeah. So you're more like Iggy and I'm more like David. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> I, I think that's a pretty good estimation of the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> now, this was arguably the Stooges at the height of their abilities, yeah. both musically and performatively, because this was a time when the balance between order and chaos, it was perfect. You had both them being able to play their instruments, to play them well, but still with just enough chaos to make it unpredictable and totally original. But then things started to fall apart. It was in 1970 that the Stooges got noticed that the beloved Funhouse, the actual structure where a lot of them lived, was due to be demolished within a year to allow for the building of a new highway. Oh, so when you said things were starting to fall apart, you actually meant it literally. (laughs) Yes, things were... First, literally falling (laughs) apart, and then metaphorically began to fall apart. Got it. But, I mean, but they knew that the fun house was going to be demolished, because that's why the old bear let them rent the house in the first place, because he knew, like, well, it's going to be demolished anyway, might as well make a little bit of cash, and who gives a fuck what these goddamn hippies do to the place in the meantime. (laughs) And soon after they got noticed that the fun house was going to be demolished, the album Funhouse was released, and I would say the reception was not great. No, it wasn't. I would say revulsion and jeers on the parts of critics and radio. That's probably a pretty good way to put it. Just for example, like here's a, an excerpt from the Melody Maker review of Funhouse. Uh, they called it, quote, A muddy load of sluggish rubbish heavily disguised by electricity and cold American rock. Thank you. Fuck off. <laughs> Listen to this.
Gee, that sucks. <laughs> that's two minutes into the album. That's amazing. That's two minutes into the first track. And most albums don't reach those fucking heights in the entirety of the fucking album. And Melody Maker was not impressed. <laughs> but on the other hand, like Melody Maker, they're also the paper that called the Ramones, quote, the latest bumptious band of degenerate no-talents whose most notable achievements to date is their ability to advance beyond the boundaries of New York City. Well, to be fair, Melody Maker also said that Steely Dan was good. <laughs> I mean, don't uh, don't malign Steely Dan too much. There are some hardcore Steely Dan fans out there that will fucking fight to the death. How do I offend Steely Dan but not the fans? <laughs> I will find a way. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm with you, all I don't get Steely Dan either. But then on the other hand, I say I don't get Steely Dan, and I'm going to get about 10 DMs saying <laughs> it's like, no, nah, man, it's like, you're just listening to Aja. Like, you really need to get into some of their early work and a little bit of their later work. I don't know. I've tried Steely Dan. Can't do it, man. Just can't do Steely Dan. Well, the thing is about Melody Maker, though, is that they missed the mark a couple of times when it came to punk. But concerning the Stooges... Some critics even said the Stooges were fine, but they're no Grand Funk Railroad. Who is? <laughs> Everybody listen to me and return me my ship. I'm your captain. I'm your captain. Though I'm feeling mighty sick. You think they would have sold any records if people hadn't gone on road trips? <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe. But every time you hear like Grand Funk Railroad, like especially that song, I just imagine some girl with cut off jeans with her feet up on the fucking dashboard with her hand outside the window doing like the up and down wave. Yes. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> but bad reviews notwithstanding, the Stooges were still making good money as a live band. Only problem was all the money was going to drugs. And when the drug use and live performances came together, the result was, predictably, sometimes disastrous. But note, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it was the fucking best live show that the people in the crowd had ever seen in their life. Sometimes it was an embarrassment in front of tens of thousands of people. Like getting drunk at a house party. <laughs> <laughs> well, possibly the most public of these embarrassments occurred at the Goose Lake Festival in August of 1970, right around the time that Funhouse was released. Concerning Goose Lake, it sounds like, like I, the vibe of Goose Lake, it sounds like a hellish mirror to Woodstock. You know, like just where it's kind of like it, but not quite sort of the opposite. Uh, I mean, because this is right after the Manson family. Uh, and this is right about the time that the hippie movement was switching from pot and acid to heroin and coke. The hard drugs were coming into the scene and people were about to start dying. And they were very lax. The whole festival was very lax. Dude, they were fucking selling heroin at Goose Lake like it was fucking ice cream. That's what I mean by lax. <laughs> <laughs> and they, I mean, and what it sounds like, it just dulled the whole experience. And because of the festival... That town banned festivals forever. <laughs> so, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it, it didn't work out. Like, lineup-wise, like Goose Lake, it was a who's who of middling 70s rock bands. I mean, it's 
you know, Jethro Tull, 10 years after, Mountain, Brownsville <laughs> Station, Savoy Brown, and uh, this forgotten band from the 70s, Savage Grace. No, man. I'd rather be drafted. <laughs> Sign me up and ship me out. <laughs> no, don't get me wrong. I mean, those bands aren't necessarily bad. I mean, especially Jethro Tull. Jethro Tull's got some great fucking songs. They're great. Yeah. But have you ever chosen to listen to Jethro Tull? Or they're, have you just heard Jethro Tull a lot? They're great. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> But, you know, outside of the Stooges and other bands like the MC5 and the Flying Burrito Brothers. <laughs> I just hated it again. Flying Burrito Brothers. <laughs> what a great name. <laughs> yeah, Graham Parsons. You know, like Flying Burrito Brothers are fucking great. Would love to see the Fry- Flying Burrito Brothers back in the day. Uh, and apparently, like, The Faces did a great set uh, at Goose Lake. Overall, that lineup, it's fucking, it's one sop with Camel away from being the perfect representation of a modern record store dollar bin. Yes. <laughs> how many fucking, when we've been out buying records, how many Brownsville Station records have you flipped past? How many Savoy Brown records have you flipped past me like, I'm not listening to that. <laughs> <laughs> and while some of these bands did at the very least give uh, competent, if not fantastic performances, the Stooges did not. Okay, let's go right before they go on the show, right? Everyone in the band gets there to the grounds, and they all go off on their own way. And Iggy ends up going from tent to tent, snorting what he could find. <laughs> just just fucking anything. Anything. <laughs> oh. And he thinks he snorted something they called uh, Special K. Ketamine. Yeah. <laughs> it's a horse tranquilizer. <laughs> Jesus. Okay, so... I hear it's real fun, though. If you can if you can avoid the K-hole, it can be very fun. <laughs> Speaking of the K-hole, he, once he snorted that, he had total amnesia. Like he, really, like, he had no idea who he was, what he was doing. He just sat there in a tent, like, terrified. Like, like what is my name? <laughs> Why am I here? Why am I a boy? <laughs> And he just sat there, his mouth gaping, his eyes gazing out, and then like it hit him like a thunderbolt. I'm here to play music. <laughs> I'm at work right now. So he jumps in, <laughs> yes. <laughs> he jumps in a car and he drives to the backstage area to play music. Luckily, he remembered in time. And the way Iggy explains it, there's a trench between the audience and the stage, right? There's a trench and there's also a big fence. Mm-hmm. The stage itself was a revolving stage, like a, like a turntable with two sides on it. Yeah, it was really cool because that way you could have a band finish up and the other and the next band is setting up behind them. So as soon as one band is over, the stage rotates and the next band goes on with no break in the music That's at right. all. Think the dating game. <laughs> so he's performing his set with a band on the revolving stage. He's singing his heart out. He's really into it and feeling the energy. Everything's going so well. So then Iggy decides to yell to the crowd, come a little closer. (laughs) And they did. So the crowd tried to tear the fence apart and Iggy tried to get to the crowd. And you can see like snippets of this on uh, YouTube. So it's not exactly the way Iggy tells it. Yeah. He's more like just looking at them. (laughs) 
and they start running towards him. And supposedly, security tries to pull Iggy back when, while he's yelling, mm-hmm. tear her down, tear her down. And the rest of the band's like, yeah, tear her down. <laughs> so then the lights go off. The sound goes off, and they're, the security is trying to revolve the stage back. Yeah, just like these assholes are done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this is a story that Iggy told for a while, right? The Stooges roadies, they went after the guys, the security guys, in the light tower. Because, you know, in the festival, there's a light tower right there in the middle to mm-hmm. shine the lights on them. And one of the roadies climbs up the tower, punches the guy in the face, <laughs> knocks him out, turns on the light. And then their other roadie backstage revolves the stage back so the Stooges can finish their set. <laughs> and these roadies, okay, like serious roadies, they were uh, Dave Dunlap, the dog man, and uh, uh, he was he was a former r- Marine. Dave Dunlop, the dog man. Definitely a Marine. <laughs> <laughs> and Bernie, who is a tank commander in Vietnam. So they used Vietnam vets yeah. as their roadies. <laughs> and these big guys like just punching security in the face like, let him play. Just let him play. And then many years later, uh, they asked Iggy about this story. And he said... Uh, actually, I don't know if that was true. <laughs> but a fun story nonetheless. Fun story. And up until that point, the show was going pretty fucking good. Until well, yeah. Dave Alexander forgot how to play bass. Well, this is what happened. Dave Alexander, when he gets there, too, and everyone goes their own way, he was really nervous uh, because he'd never played in front of an audience that big. I mean, there was hundreds of thousands of people there. It's huge, yeah. And it's... so, like, he, like, decided to drink, like, a bottle of whiskey uh... and smoke a lot of pot. And he had, like, no tolerance because he hadn't smoked or drank in months. Yeah. So it hit him so hard. Like, he just froze. He couldn't play. Yeah, he just absolutely could not play at all. He made it to the stage that's as far as it went. Yeah, and there is actual video footage of this performance, or at least one song. There's video footage of 1970 out there. And for anyone who thinks bass guitar ain't all that important... Just hear this. Who com- thinks that? <laughs> Who thinks that? I've heard jokes. All right. I've heard a lot of <laughs> jokes about us in the rhythm section. All right. Like, what do you call people who hang out with bass players and drummers? Musicians. No. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> hear this comparison between what 1970 is supposed to sound like, 1970 from Funhouse. Compared to what it sounded like that night at Goose Lake. I feel all right. I feel all So Iggy walks backstage at the end of the set and he says, I want Dave gone. Yeah. Dave's fired. And no one wanted Dave to go, but it was Iggy's word and they weren't going to fight him on it anyways. Yeah. I I don't know why they didn't fight harder because Dave Alexander was a fucking great bass player. Like he wrote some, he wrote some great shit. He wrote some great fucking bass lines. Like the bass line to TVI uh, is amazing. Like it's fucking, it's so fucking cool. Um, But yeah, after that show, Dave Alexander 
gone out of the Stooges forever. And that was the last time uh, Dave played with the Stooges ever again. Although he did come to see him play a few years later in New York just to hang out. Yeah. So he wasn't too salty about it. And even though he he wasn't in the band for very long, he was still one of like the founding members. Yeah. So they were childhood friends. Like, oh, can I tell this one story about Dave? Please. As a nice little sender. <laughs> please, please. All right. They were playing a gig in Wisconsin, 1969. Dave decided to set his bass on fire <laughs> at the show because he had seen Jimi Hendrix do it live. And it was super cool. So it's like, yeah, that's super cool. So I'm going to be super cool, too, and I'm going to set it on fire. It'll be great. You, If you do something that Jimi Hendrix does, I promise you it's not super cool. <laughs> So anyway, so at the end of the show, Dave puts his bass down. He pours lighter fluid on it and sets it on fire. Okay. And he's just like, look at what I've done. (laughs) But then the flames were getting higher and higher. They're like three feet high. Yeah. So then he decides to jump on the bass to put it out with his chest, (laughs) ruining the shirt he was wearing, which happened to be Iggy's favorite shirt that Iggy lent Dave that night. (laughs) And Iggy says, he said this in his book about it. He's like, it didn't look good, but it was the thought that counted. (laughs) Here's, Here's to Dave. Here's to you, Dave Alexander. And so, after Dave was fired, he was replaced with a roadie named Zeke Zetner, and soon after, the Stooges began a legendary four-night run at Ungano's in New York City. Let's hear a little bit from one of those nights. I really feel like I'm there next door. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, that was a recording of the show that was released back in 2010. And like almost every single Stooges live recording, while it's cool as fuck to hear, the sound quality is fucking terrible. I mean, that's the thing about Stooges live recordings. Like there are very few good ones out there, at least from this time period. Because there's also no live recordings of the Stooges like before uh, the first album, and there's really no live recordings to speak of between the first album and the second album. There's a legend somewhere in Detroit sits a reel-to-reel of a Stooges live recording in an abandoned house. Because there's so many abandoned houses in Detroit that that's just, that's part of a, that's a theory that there has to be one out there somewhere. But it's either sitting in an abandoned house or it was in one of the many, many houses in Detroit that have been burned down, destroyed, or demolished. Well, then let's send Snake Bliskin. (laughs) 
<laughs> You'll retrieve the tape. Finally. And then we'll maybe we'll get to hear it. Because, I goddamn, I want to hear that so bad. Uh, and there are some good live recordings out there. Of course, like we'll talk about Metallic KO on uh, on episode four. Yeah. Uh, and there was a pretty good, there's a pretty good recording uh, that was released with, I think it was like the legacy edition of Raw Power. Um, but for the most part, they sound like the Ungano show. And the reason why that one sounds so bad is because it's just an audience recording. That audience recording was done by Danny Fields. And what's really interesting about this release is that it starts with a recording of Danny and a few of his friends on their way to the show, which means you can hear an honest opinion of what even the quote-unquote cool kids thought about the Stooges back then. Yeah, you know, well, their last, like, album, like, stuff... Like a lot better. This one's like about 4,500 times better than the last one, but I don't really dig him because, like, he's one of, you know, he jumps into the audience, you know, and he throw, puts meat on his body, you know. He cuts so. himself and everything. What? Yeah, but it's like. He cuts himself up. And I don't like people inflicting their shit on me if I'm in the audience. He does a real routine. He jumps into Sarah Lawrence's audience. Yeah, but he always makes it easy. Yeah, sure, and starts cutting his chest up with knives. <laughs> I love New York City kids. <laughs> I do. The girl sounds so terrified with knives. Oh. <laughs> like it's a fucking horror movie She's or like something. She's like trying to get out of the car. <laughs> so yeah, the show's at Ungano's, right? The, the Stooges were booked for six shows. That's two sets a night for three nights in a row. Oof. And at this time, they're finally playing 45-minute sets. Yeah. But they never performed more than two nights in a row. And this time, they had to do six shows. That's fucking rough. Yeah, 10 p.m. and a midnight show. Oof. So Iggy came out with a great plan. He had a dealer named Billy in the Chelsea Hotel to get him some coke for the shows. <laughs> <laughs> but he needed money. Of course. So he went to the Electra Records offices to meet with Bill Harvey, the vice president of Electra, <laughs> and asked him for a $400 advance. God damn. So Bill says, like, I guess. I, I, what do you need it for? And Iggy goes, uh, say something, say something. Mm-hmm. I need it for coke. <laughs> I'm going to need it for cocaine. (laughs) Isn't it great that I'm being really honest? Hey, man, at least I'm fucking being honest with it. I'm going to need a lot of cocaine. (laughs) Bill Harvey was not happy about giving money for hard drugs from a company. But Iggy persisted, saying he had to have it. Gotta have it, man. I mean, if you want me to do this show, I gotta have the cocaine. Just give (laughs) me the cocaine, man. Bill relented. He gave him the money, and he was just like, now get out of my office. (laughs) Which Iggy has probably heard a lot. Get out of here, you fucking asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Iggy gets his coke and gets to Ungano's. And and it's it's a small venue. It's in the upper, oh, it used to be in the upper west side. Mm -hmm. It's since closed. But uh, so there's no stage. They played on the floor near the tables where the audience were. And Miles Davis was there. Miles Davis watched the show. And, you know, he said he noted, uh, he said the Stooges, uh, they're uh, very uh, original. Yeah. Very original. Miles Davis had great respect for the Stooges. I mean, he recognized it. He recognized it for the genius that it was. Yeah, absolutely. And they played great songs. I mean, they played Down on the Street, Dirt, Funhouse, TVI, Private Parts, Dog Food. A lot of songs that we haven't heard. Yeah. And on one night, Iggy decides to hang upside down from one of the pipes in the ceiling. Okay, he swung on it with his legs, you know, like upside down, like like a little kid. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the pipe 
gives way <laughs> and ripped and the pipe ripped out and Iggy fell on his ass. Of course. <laughs> but Iggy wasn't phased about it, even though there was like a big expense over there. He's just like, eh, Danny Fields will take care of that. <laughs> Because Danny Fields always took care of it. Yes. I mean, that's part of his job. A hundred things go right. (laughs) One thing goes wrong. And then Iggy then went back to his hotel and took a couple of downers. Yeah. And slept for literally days. Mm -hmm. His band left him there at the Chelsea Hotel when they couldn't wake him. (laughs) And and they all just left. They went to Detroit. Iggy finally woke up with an enormous hotel bill, so he called his mom to bail him out because Danny left already. Uh, I mean, that's that's again and again with Iggy is the last resort is always call up mom and dad. Yeah. And usually they helped him out because they were supportive. They always helped him out. They always helped him out. They were always supportive. And I guess it paid off in the end. Yeah. <laughs> Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Meanwhile, a lot of the counterculture in Detroit had replaced idealistic dreams of revolution with heroin. And even the MC5 had picked up habits while the Stooges were out and about touring Funhouse. And from the way Iggy Pop told it, once he got back to Detroit, he eased into his habit as a way to kind of calm down after years of being on acid damn near every day. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of fucking people during this time period got hooked for exactly the same reason. Because you're not supposed to have full-blown trips every day of your life. No? No. No, I mean it's a fucking terrible idea. I mean, I could it's only terrible. I could only imagine what it does to a, to the, you know, capital E ego of a person. How much anxiety that has to fucking cause. Uh, I mean, I know I just did mushrooms for like a couple of months and came out the other end not the same person and not in a good way. You told me about this. Yeah, not the same person. I mean, it it was, I came out the other side uh, not feeling very fucking good. And, you know, that could be one of the reasons why I had my first mental breakdown pretty soon afterwards. Oh, you just needed heroin. (laughs) Yeah, man, if I would have had heroin to even myself out, I would have been totally cool. Yes, my (laughs) fragile brain chemistry would have been totally evened out. My addictive personality would have really just picked picked it up, smoothed myself out, and then I could have just tossed it away. <laughs> Moved to New York City and become a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> but pretty soon after Iggy started doing heroin, he started doing it every day. And he was followed by bassist Zeke Zetner, saxophonist Steve McKay, and drummer Scott Ashton. Only member of the Stooges who wasn't on heroin was Ron Ashton, the guitarist. That's right. They tried to, They actually did hide it as well as they could from Ron. Yeah. But the reason why they all got into 
heroin is because of John Adams. Well, John Adams was the guy that introduced them to cocaine back in uh, in Los Angeles, like during Funhouse. Right. And when John Adams was in New York with those guys for the Ungano shows, uh, he scored some heroin and got off the wagon. Yeah, fell off the wagon. He fell off the wagon. Well, he jumped off the wagon, really. <laughs> Bringing Steve McKay, who was rooming with him at the time, along with him. Yeah. And then, as you said, once they got back to the Funhouse, Iggy got into it. Then Scott Ashton, Bill Cheatham, Zeke Setner. And the Funhouse even had a shooting gallery. Yeah, I had re- you can read about this in Please Kill Me. It sounds like the most disgusting room in Detroit, and that's saying a lot. Blood everywhere. Yeah. Uh, old blood, fresh blood, just spatters all over, like squirting all over the walls and the ceiling. It was disgusting. Yeah, one witness said it was oddly beautiful. Like, it was like a weird modern art piece, but, you know, blood dries brown, and so it was browns mixed with reds, uh, just in uh, the most disgusting room and the most disgusting house in uh, all of Detroit. The fun house. The fun house, yeah. I I mean, they really, really fucking got into it, because, like, once management switched over to John Adams, John Adams got a hold of the Stooges' bank account, and within, I think, three weeks empty they'd spent all of it on coke and heroin that's insane i mean you gotta think like oh there's a lot of them there's a lot of them there's like five six people that are all having daily habits and pretty soon after that the stooges let go steve mckay and steve mckay i mean god i wish steve mckay would have stayed in the band because steve mckay he would have been dead yeah (laughs) well i wish they wouldn't have got on heroin then That's a lot be of wishing. <laughs> you only get three. <laughs> well, yeah, if you remember, like, Steve McKay, he was the saxophonist who gave Funhouse that fucking weird edge. Like, check this out. But the thing is that McKay said that he actually wanted to be fired by the Stooges. He didn't want to be in the band anymore. He said that he was probably about two months from a full-blown heroin addiction. That's the thing about heroin addiction, or really any drug addiction. It's not like you take heroin on Monday and you're addicted on Tuesday. You take heroin on Monday, and then you take it the next Monday. And then you take it the next Saturday, and then the next Thursday, and then... Pretty soon, you're taking it every few hours. It builds. It is not an A to B type of thing. Like, it builds little by little by little until, before you know it, you are fully and completely addicted. I know. I see it at home with LaCroix. (laughs) And it's so hard (laughs) to see you do that to yourself. I don't know what you have against LaCroix. It's not water. (laughs) (laughs) But it's the closest thing to water Without me having to drink sodas all the time. It's the, it is the compromise. It's my soda methadone, all right? <laughs> all right. <laughs> but as McKay was on his way out, the Stooges, who were starting to drift further and further away from Ron Ashton, brought in another permanent member to play as rhythm guitarist, at least at first. That man's name was James Williamson. And here's an example of what he sounded like. Yeah. 
He is really talented. He's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that right, that, that's an example of his lead guitar work that he uh, did later on for the Stooges. But back when he first came into the band, it was just rhythm. Well, because Ron wanted to play lead, and he thought it'd be a better, strong, stronger sound if he brought in James Williamson. Because James Williamson, they knew him from back in the day when he played in The Chosen Few with Scott Richardson's band, mm-hmm. with Ron. And he also hung out while they recorded their first album. So he's a guy who's been around anyways. Yeah. And that's usually how that shit happens. Like, usually you bring in new guys in the band that it's usually just guys who've been hanging around for a while. One night, they end up just picking up a guitar playing with the band, and you think, wow, that sounds really fucking good. Well, you're in the band now. Yeah. That's that how happens it... to a lot of roadies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it actually does. So he joins the band at the end of 1970. Mm-hmm. And so the beginning of 1971, the lineup was Jimmy Rickup playing bass. He played bass with them for a few months. Uh, he replaced Zeke. And Ron and James playing guitar, Scott at drums. Now, a lot of people blame James Williamson for Iggy's true descent into addiction and therefore the subsequent destruction of the Stooges. But that shit was already well out of hand by the time Williamson showed up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Everyone blames him. But the thing is, he just, as you said, he showed up when it happened. Yeah. And, well, it's also because no one liked James Williamson. Unfortunately, yeah. But you know why? Because James Williamson... Did not like anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was not a popular dude. And no. he made a great scapegoat. And he was very intense. Yeah, he was extremely intense. And, and you know, and that's what uh, Iggy later said about James Williamson is that he tended to accelerate everything. Like, And by acceleration, he meant... Uh, Partly that when they played live, like James Williamson just kept playing faster and faster and faster. That's just his intensity. Uh, but he also accelerated drug use, more and more heroin, more yes. and more cocaine. Like, that's just the type of guy he was. He was a fucking engine. And that's how his fucking guitar playing is as well. Like, he is the fucking engine in that goddamn group. Now, as a result, Ron Ashton got pushed further and further away, and it got even worse when Iggy, James, and Scott moved into a high-rise in the center of Ann Arbor so their dealer would have an easier time with deliveries. Oh, how convenient. (laughs) How wonderful for them. Uh, They moved to the University Tower Apartments, which are actually still standing there to this day. No shit. Yeah. Uh, Maybe I'll go there when I go to Detroit next week. Maybe I'll go check check them out. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) And then they'll be like, sorry, sir, deliveries are in the back. (laughs) But I'm not a dealer. So it's Iggy, Scott, and James, right? The three of them are living together. And as Scott says on their living situation, he's like, we had a great time. We had two maids that came in once a week, both of them foxes, to clean the apartment, and we had great wild sex with them. (laughs) It was happening, man. We were on top of the world. Well, we weren't on top, but we were on the seventh floor. Bro, it was cool. (laughs) None of that sounds true, except for them being on the seventh floor. (laughs) (laughs) It also doesn't sound like those women were maids. It sounds like they were sex workers who were playing maids. (laughs) (laughs) They fulfilled a service. Yes. God bless them. God bless them. God bless them all. And this is when they're at the height of their heroin addiction, right? One of their many heights again. Mm -hmm. Iggy and James... It was a peak. Oh, yeah. A peak, peaks and valleys. Peaks and valleys. This was a peak. Oh, gotcha. So one night, Iggy and James stayed up all night doing drugs. 
Iggy was waiting until 9 a.m. because that's when the bank opens. And he needed to cash a check. I mean, a bad check, yeah. but <laughs> still a check nonetheless. Yes, he still needed ways to facilitate the getting of money. He finally gets to the bank wearing long sleeves, like trying not to look like a drug addict, mm-hmm. which is like impossible. Yeah. So he's waiting in line to cash his check. And all of a sudden, two police officers, like, pick him up, literally pick him up and throw him in the back of the police car. Mm-hmm. And Iggy was in the back of the car asking like, what do I do, man? What are the charges? Like he had no idea what just happened to him. Mm-hmm. And it turns out there was like a dragnet in the area because they were looking for a murder suspect. <laughs> the charge is murder, son. You know what you did. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So back in the day, dragnets were like when there was a huge, uh, a terrible crime, like police would just pick up anybody in that area like anyone who kind of fit the description yes which very unconstitutional it's very racist yeah (laughs) but okay so once the cops realized that they didn't get the guy and he didn't fit the description they were just kind of like looking back in the police cruiser like i don't think that's the guy but they still brought him to the police station because he was riddled with lice (laughs) with scabs on him on his face and so they were trying to get him to rat out his dealer to at least get something out of him but he didn't budge he wouldn't he wouldn't say anything and he says in his book he says uh he felt like a good person from that (laughs) from that i didn't rat out my dealer yeah i didn't rat out my dealer well, that's the thing about Iggy and dealers is that after he was a heroin addict for a while, is that he figured, man, I've been doing so much heroin. You know what I should be doing? Selling it as well. That's a great idea, Iggy. <laughs> that's such, you're full of great ideas. He's so full of great ideas. So he hung up his shingle as a heroin dealer. <laughs> and uh, he partnered with Wayne Kramer of the MC5. You know, I'm usually supportive of my friend's side businesses, <laughs> but Wayne Kramer thought it was such a great idea. He thought it was such an amazing idea. Oh. Uh, so did Iggy Pop. They're just like, man, we're going to fucking do this. We're going to make so much money. This is going to be easy, man. <laughs> They were fucking terrible at it. Or at the very least, Iggy was terrible at it. Because while the MC5 were out on tour, Iggy spent all the money they'd made and just got high all the time. Just, oh, uh, just a little bit more, man. Like, oh, just a little bit more. And then, you know, I'll go out and sell it. What's just the number one more. rule? Don't get high on your own supply. No, don't partner up with Iggy. <laughs> And of course, since he had a fucking mountain of heroin in front of him, uh, he OD'd. 
landed in the hospital. So when Kramer got back and Iggy was out of the hospital, Kramer took Iggy to a bad neighborhood so they could buy more drugs. At least that's what Wayne Kramer told him. But instead of picking up a package, Kramer forced Iggy out of the car, pulled a gun, took <laughs> all of Iggy's money, and left Iggy stranded in the worst neighborhood in Detroit wearing, by some accounts, a pink tutu. <laughs> Hey, Iggy, Iggy, remember that time I robbed you at gunpoint? Yeah, I remember. Oh, remember? Yeah, so, I remember. It was so funny. Yeah, it was real uh, funny. What were you wearing? I was wearing Wait, 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 mom, mom, come in here. <laughs> Everyone needs to hear this. It was a tutu. Oh, I love it when he tells it. <laughs> you pulled a gun on me. We're still friends. <laughs> and you know what? Iggy wasn't the only stooge fucking up here either. I mean, the other stooges were doing their best to just, I don't know, be as destructive as possible. Well... Yeah. I mean, yes and no. They I mean, took turns. <laughs> this time, it was Scott Ashton's fault. Mm -hmm. So what happened was, Scott Ashton rented a truck, right, to take all their instruments that they also rented to a gig. But Scott Ashton was also on Reds. Ah, uh, downers. Yeah, and he had no driver's license either. Oh, it's great. So he's driving this 12-foot rental truck with the equipment, and then he hits a 10-foot railway pass. Oh, Peeling the top of the trunk clean. <laughs> so Scott, who's in the car, in the truck with two roadies, they all fly out. Because remember, 1971, no seatbelts. No seatbelts, man. Ralph Nader's not in it yet. And Scott was so high, he didn't realize what had happened until he stopped rolling down the grass. <laughs> oh, man. The three of them made it. They were fine, yeah. but Scott needed six stitches on his chin and one on his tongue. Ugh. And he said there's no worse pain than getting a stitch on your tongue. Fuck, I can imagine. That's <laughs> awful. And the worst part, Danny Fields gets a phone call at 4 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened? You're getting sued by the owners of the truck? <laughs> the owners of the instruments? And the city of Ann Arbor. <laughs> no, apparently, uh, from what I hear, you can still go to that railway pass in Ann Arbor, and there's still a gigantic mark. The Washington Bridge. Check it out when you go. <laughs> yeah, when you go to Ann Arbor. Yeah, anytime, all you kids out there who live in Ann Arbor, go check it out. Yeah, you can still see the mark where, uh, where the truck hit the bridge. So that show that they were driving to, it had to be canceled, of course, because of his tongue. Yeah. But the next night, they had to play at the same place. Yeah. So Steve McKay replaced Scott on drums the next night. Uh, Steve McKay couldn't play drums, could he? It didn't work out well. <laughs> no, he couldn't. He practiced a little bit. Yeah. But it, it, during the whole show, Iggy kept like berating Steve and like even stopping the song. He'd be like, hey, stop, 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 stop. No, 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 no. Do it again. Do it again, Steve. One, two, three. No, no. Steve. Uh, oh. Steve, get it right, Steve. Oh, that sounds like a fucking. I've had that nightmare. And it's awful, like, because the light is shining on Steve and he's sweating. He's yeah. all shook. He's He wants to pass out. <sighs> and he was so embarrassed that he, re he refused to take the pay but the rest of the band made him take the pay oh that's sweet of them but that's yeah I mean that's the fucking that's so awful because that's the thing I mean people think that drumming is very easy uh 
It's no, not. it's not. <laughs> it's not just something that you can pick up and just do. I mean, I actually did see something similar to this once. Played a show at, uh, where was it? Um, Cupcake Factory? Was that what it was called? Uh, place that, yeah, it was at maybe the Birthday Factory. I don't know. It was Cupcake something down on the Lower East Side. <laughs> Playing a show down there, uh, and this band Cake opened shop? for us. Cake Shop! That's what it is, not Cupcake Factory. I used to play Factory. there, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so so we were playing a show. There was a band opening for us, and the lead singer, she made her boyfriend learn drums so he could play in this band, but she made him learn drums about a month before, maybe two months before. He'd never played drums before, and for only playing drums for a couple of months, he was okay, but the, the look of embarrassment on that dude's <laughs> face and the look of just like what the fuck am i doing steve mckay had a few hours oh no 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 so oh that's fucking awful but sweet of the studios does still give him pay i mean but during this whole time you know like danny fields he's still trying to help out the stooges i mean as much as he can and for the most part like iggy when danny fields was around like iggy could keep his shit together because he had to but all that ended in 1971 when Danny went to a Stooges show in Chicago where the Stooges were playing with Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper had just relocated to Pontiac, Michigan from Los Angeles prior to the release of their classic 1971 album, Killer. song so good yeah oh, i love that song so much it's like eight and a half minutes long it's so fucking good did this come before or after i'm 18 <laughs> this is right this is the album after i'm 18 oh, okay. but the album before uh school's out no well it was the album after i'm 18 i think those two albums were released in the same year mm -hmm. uh, but it was right before no more mr nice guy which was really like that was the song that was like the big 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 hit uh for alice cooper but yeah killer is it's fucking amazing it's such a fucking good album and halo of flies that was a song I just played of course like if you want to hear this stuff again all on a spotify playlist on my profile for you to listen to after you finish listening to us no. nice little companion piece but at this show with alice cooper this was the one that danny fields found iggy backstage passed out with a needle in his arm mm -hmm. and when danny pulled out the needle Iggy's blood spurted all over his face. Look, he got red on him. 
<laughs> so this show, this was in uh, June 1971. They played at the Electric Circus in New York City. Mm-hmm. Oh, this was in New York City when the whole blood on the face happened. Yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, okay. Well, <laughs> oh, this is just so many times. <laughs> it's just <laughs> a lot of times. <laughs> Iggy's feeling kind of queasy because obviously he just shot up. He comes on stage and Jerry Miller, one of the Andy Warhol scene kids, mm-hmm. starts yelling, throw up, throw up. <laughs> What are you going to throw up? So Iggy did. He threw up all over her. And he said, you people make me sick. (laughs) Didi Ramones was at that show. Oh, no shit. Yeah. You know what, man? If I'm at a show and I'm on stage and I'm feeling queasy and someone is yelling, throw up, throw up. If I do throw up, I am definitely aiming for that person. Yeah. Now, despite all this, the Stooges were still working on new material for the next album, and their bosses at Electra Records were naturally anxious to hear it, but they were also anxious to get rid of the fucking Stooges. Yeah, Electra really didn't want anything to do with the Stooges anymore. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, the band didn't sign a morality clause, otherwise they would have been out of there immediately. Yeah. But Bill Harvey and Don Gallucci, they came down to the funhouse to listen to their set. Yeah, this is like... Play us the new album. Tell exactly. us what, to show us what you got. But Bill, remember, he is no friend of Danny Fields. Yes, and no friend of Iggy's because Iggy, this Bill is the guy that Iggy had begged four hundred dollars for uh, cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> and Don, even though he uh, produced their second album because Jack Holtzman told him to. Mm-hmm. Jack said to Don, let us know what you think, and I'll decide to go with it or not. Right. And Don knew if the decision was up to him, then it's on him. Yeah. The responsibility is on him. But before it's, he had to- The responsibility is on him to record the fucking album and to work with the Stooges again. Exactly. Yes. And see whatever comes out. <laughs> but before he had to decide, Ron Ashton gave Don a tour of the funhouse. Because, you know, Ron's a nice guy. Yeah. He's the one you want to talk to. Yeah, of course. He's he's the one not on heroin. Yeah. <laughs> so he's having a good time, Don and Ron. And he's like, oh, look. Oh, that's the kitchen. That's really nice. And uh, the, the living room is tidy. And then he goes into Ron's room. And he's like, oh, my God. Nazis. <laughs> Nazi paraphernalia everywhere. <laughs> Uniforms, helmets, books. <laughs> everything you could think of. And Don asks him, like, so, Ron, uh, why do you have all this stuff? And Ron was essentially tr- asking, hey, are you a Nazi? Yeah. <laughs> exactly that. And Ron, had, he, you know, he had a weird sense of humor. He wanted to make some dark jokes, mm-hmm. but didn't really go over very well or done. Didn't really know how to do it. Yeah, because Ron responded with, well, you know, I had this fascination since I was a kid because when my mom used to blow dry my hair and make this noise like this shh. I could hear it say, Sig Heil! Sig Heil! <laughs> so you know, like, Nazis remind me of my mom, and it just makes me feel good inside. It just makes me feel real comfortable. Don was not amused. No. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, after we took that trip uh, at, to Auschwitz uh-huh. this year, it's not very funny. No. <laughs> I know it's not. It's not funny. I know it's not. I know. I know it's not. Auschwitz and Birkenau is. It was a very sobering, uh, very sobering experience. That's right. So anyway, eventually they played the their set. Why did you bring up Auschwitz? <laughs> because it's not very funny. It's not very funny. <laughs> so they played their set, but they made Don and Bill like wait forever. And Iggy says this in his autobiography. 
I'll never deny my memory the joy of watching the physical discomfort of these prissy assholes having to wait for five hours and being too uptight to make contact with a wall, sit in a chair, or go to the bathroom. (laughs) That's how gross the funhouse was. So you can guess how that turned out. Uh, Electra demanded their advance immediately. <laughs> Electra's like you're done. Uh, not gonna, not gonna do it. Not gonna deal with this anymore. Uh, and they, and that advance, like it was substantial. I mean, it was about eleven thousand dollars, near enough. Uh, which in today, that's a good sixty grand. Ooh. That's a lot of fucking cash. So, in order to pay off the debt, all of the income from the Stooges live shows had to be funneled directly to Electra. So the Stooges had. No money at all. That's why sometimes they would do shows for drugs. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. Because I mean, <laughs> if they're not making money, they can't give money to the company. I guess if you're at that point, yeah, barter system's the way to go. <laughs> <laughs> so they lose their deal with Electra. Yeah. And no, no money's coming in. They're having it. Or at the very least, they're just playing shows to pay back Electra. Pretty much. And that's when the Stooges break up for the first time. For the first time, yeah. And Iggy and James both decide to leave the band. So their last gig with the Stooges at that time was in Toledo, Ohio. And Iggy said that he was at the Dairy Queen after a gig. Looking around, he realized, like, these guys are all lazy. Mm -hmm. I don't want to work with these guys anymore. Scott keeps selling his instruments to buy drugs. He doesn't have drum set anymore. Jesus. Yeah. So they had a contract, though, for a show in July. At the Wampler's Lake Pavilion in Irish Hills, Michigan. <laughs> I like to say Wampler. Uh, everyone loves saying Wampler. Wampler's Lake Pavilion. And I come on out to the Wampler's Lake Pavilion in Irish Hills, Michigan, where the Stooges are going to be playing. Come on out. <laughs> James and Iggy did not show, obviously, because they had left the band. Yeah. But Ron was like, well, we have a contract. We need to make some money. So the rest of the band did come to play that show. So what they did is that when they were ready to go on, they just like, you know, kind of tap into the microphone. Was like, "Hey, does anyone here know how to sing? <laughs> anyone?" And then there was one guy, Steve Richards. He's like, "I do." And so he got up and he sang a song with them. Uh, that's got to be fun. Yeah, the song was called "What's You Got? What's You Gonna Do About It?" <laughs> I mean, that is fun. At the very, I mean, you do what you have to do at that point. Right, and the band was ending. Fun house was ending. It was going to be bulldozed. But one fun little thing right before they left, though, uh, according to Bill Cheatham, uh, you can read it and please kill me. Scott owed money to a biker gang for drugs. Oh. So he runs to the fun house. He like locks the door and he's like, oh, my God, I have in so much trouble. <laughs> this is back when biker gangs were fucking serious. Exactly. And they so they had to like pretty much make the fun house a fortress they had to, they used plywood uh, on the windows they stockpiled a bunch of rifles and shotguns and where, pistols where did they get rifles shotguns and pistols oh it was easy <laughs> mc5 had a whole arsenal that is true yeah you just got to go over to the mc5's place and they're gonna lend you some shotguns exactly they probably borrow them yeah you know so they boarded up the whole fun house and they sat there for days waiting for the biker gang to appear mm-hmm. they never showed but while they're sitting there Bored. I mean, yeah, you're waiting for, th- I mean, three days waiting for an ambush from a biker gang. Like, I mean, it's terror mixed with boredom. And eventually that terror goes away and you just have boredom. Right. So Scott is like staring at a poster of Elvis in the living room and he picks up a pistol and he shoots it. <laughs> 
And everyone else is like, what? Okay. So they all took a cue and picked up guns and started shooting up the whole house. <laughs> like everywhere. Like having fun. Like laughing. Like Sounds crazy. Like so much fun. But then John Adams, who was in the basement at the time, having no idea what was going on, <laughs> runs upstairs covered in plaster. <laughs> and is like, what did you guys just do? <laughs> I mean, fuck it, man. Yeah, they, it was going to be demolished anyway, so they said fuck it, and they shut up the place, and that was the end of the fun house. Yeah, and they, yeah, and right now, I don't even know what highway in Detroit runs through that fucking house anymore. I doubt you could even find it on a fucking map. It's gone. It's gone forever. Now, the thing is about this town is, like, even though the Stooges were gone, at least temporarily, like, Danny Fields was still friends with Iggy. He still believed in Iggy as an artist. But since junkies aren't known to be the most loyal people on Earth, especially Iggy Pop when he's a junkie, <laughs> Iggy started working with a guy named Steve Paul in New York, and Steve set up Iggy with another musician named Rick Derringer, who was once a part of the band called The McCoys, best known for their 1964 hit, Hang On Sloopy. Marcus, let's make a fortress out of this studio. <laughs> Come on, don't be such a wuss. Whoa, now I get to have a gun? Now the rule that you had around the house that I can never own a gun? Now that's now it's down, done, huh? That's in the house. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, the collaboration with Rick Derringer, it was short-lived. It felt around the time that Iggy's 15-year-old girlfriend came up to New York City from Ann Arbor, uh, stole Rick's wife's jewelry, and pawned it at various shops around the city uh, for drug money. Oh, that's right. And, and then that's when they said, like, get the fuck out of here, you goddamn scumbag. Nobody wants you around. And after that, Iggy went crawling back to Danny Fields and moved into Danny's apartment. Actually, right before he did that, he stayed with Terry Ork uh, for oh, a little while. Oh, Terry Ork, no shit. Yeah, yeah. Th that's when he did that famous naked picture shot, uh, shoot with uh, Ger Gerard Malanga. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so he stayed there and he got naked for Gerald and then uh, eventually moved in with Danny Fields because, you know, <laughs> he had to move around. 
<laughs> well, Terry Ork is a, I mean, I, I hope we get to talk about him uh, later on, but if you want a really fucking cool box set that kind of encapsulates that time period in New York music, listen to Ork Records, New York, New York. Like Terry Ork was like, he was the first guy to record television. Uh, you can see here like the, the version of Johnny Jewel that Terry Ork uh, released is fucking phenomenal. Uh, but yeah, go go check that out. Terry Ork is a, a wonderful little part of the New York City scene. But while Iggy was living with Danny Fields, about a couple months into it, Danny got a call. Apparently, a writer from Melody Maker heard that Iggy was living with Danny. And the writer from Melody Maker was doing an interview with a famous fan. That fan, who happened to be visiting New York at the time... Raul Julia. <laughs> no... That fan was just about to enter the most creative and groundbreaking period of a career that would be defined by innovation. I'm talking, of course, about David Bowie. Bowie had already been praising Iggy in the press, even going so far as to call Iggy his favorite singer, working at the time. Actually, he had a top three. He had to give a top three. What were the other two? Uh, Christopher Milk. Christopher Milk. He's a singer. (laughs) And Paul Rogers from Bad Company. Bad Company? Yeah. The man who was in Bad Company and wrote the song Bad Company and put it on the album Bad Company? That's the one. I wanted to tell you that because you've been mentioning Bad Company a lot lately. Uh, I mentioned Bad Company a lot all the time. Yeah, actually, <laughs> now that I think about it. Bad Company has been a part of our lives for quite a few years now. <laughs> It'll never end. <laughs> well, at this time, all people really knew of Bowie was one bad album, his first album, that pretty much went nowhere, and two good, if uneven ones, Space Oddity and The Man Who Sold the World. They're good albums. They're great. I think they're great. Yeah, I mean, they they're have some fantastic songs. Some of the best songs Bowie ever wrote were on those albums, but they're pretty uneven. That's the thing, is that Bowie, at this point, this was just before Hunky Dory. So while Bowie was an intriguing artist, you know, of course, showing a lot of promise, he was not yet capital D, capital B, David Bowie. And that is when Bowie called up Iggy. Well, for Iggy, like he has something where when things go south, somehow he gets like a life raft. Yeah. You know, things go well, spectacularly well. (laughs) So he's sitting in Danny's apartment. Him and Danny are watching Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Mm -hmm. And Danny gets that call, like you said, Lisa Robinson, the, the, the writer, the music writer. 
And she says, you're like, you got to get down here. Just come down the street. I'm here with David Bowie. And Danny's like, okay. He looks at Iggy. Iggy's like, I'm not moving. So Danny goes. <laughs> Fucking love this movie, man. Danny goes. And he comes and he shows up and he sees everybody. He's like, oh, this is perfect. So he calls up Iggy. Not one time. Two times. Because <laughs> Iggy at that point had finished Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And now he's watching uh, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Jimmy Stewart Marathon, man. I mean, how often does this happen? <laughs> Not often enough. I love your Jimmy Stewart, by the way. Oh, 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 oh. Stay, Iggy. Oh, Iggy, you you are you you should think you should think about maybe staying here a little while. <laughs> and Iggy stares at the TV. He's like, man, I gotta stop doing drugs. <laughs> So Iggy eventually makes it over there. Yeah. So Iggy went down, met Bowie. Later on, he goes to Max's Kansas City and also meets with Bowie's manager, Tony DeFreeze. And then after that meeting, Iggy agreed to sign to DeFreeze Management Company, Jim. And as a part of the agreement, DeFreeze even said, you know what? I'll fix those fucked up teeth you got, too. That's really nice of him. Yeah, I mean... He's going to be on TV. He's got, I mean, this is your new uh, signing. So you got it. He can't go out there looking like a junkie. And he looked like a junkie. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you got you to clean him up a little bit. Fix the teeth. Heal the scabs. Then put him out there. It starts with one shower. <laughs> <laughs> well, eventually, DeFreeze set up a meeting between Iggy and Clive Davis over at Columbia Records. And Iggy somehow managed to charm his way into a multi-album deal and a $100,000 advance. I can't believe it. It's insane. I don't I I should pick up the phone more often, you know. <laughs> so Iggy tells a story like it's like a biopic of his life, right? Yeah. He says he walks in and Clive asks him like, "Hey, nice to meet you, Iggy. Can you uh can you do Paul Simon because we want to get a new Paul Simon?" And Iggy's like, "No." but I can sing. <laughs> and he sang uh, The Shadow of Your Smile. And uh, Clive picked up the phone and said into the receiver, give me the legal department. <laughs> Let's get this boy a contract. But really, it, the meeting was just a formality. Yeah, they already knew that they wanted him. Yeah, uh, David Bowie wanted him, so therefore Clive Davis wanted him. Yeah. Now, at this point, Iggy was on methadone, at least temporarily. He's trying. That's good news. He's trying. So Iggy was sent back to Ann Arbor to continue treatments and wait until DeFreeze and Bowie summoned him to the UK to record a full album. Meanwhile, David Bowie's time with Iggy was serving as inspiration for David Bowie. Bowie was just about to debut the first of his many personas that defined his career in the 70s. And the first was at least partially based on Iggy Pop, which is pretty damned obvious considering the name. Ziggy Stardust. Baby 
That song is so good. It's hard to learn, too. I tried to learn it. Uh, didn't it's get very far. A, it's a very difficult song. Yes. It's a deceptively difficult song to play. I can play it on bass, though. Oh. I'm a little behind, though. <laughs> Give me some time. A couple years behind. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, interesting side note on the whole Ziggy Stardust thing. While the Ziggy part comes from Iggy Pop, the Stardust side comes from a musician from Lubbock, Texas, who shared a record label with Bowie in the early days. That artist was the legendary Stardust Cowboy. I took a trip in a Jiminy spacecraft And I thought about you I passed through the shadow of Jupiter and I thought about you I shot my space gun Oh, I really felt blue Two or three flying saucers Parked under the stars A winding stream Moon shining down On some little town And with each beam A same old dream took a trip in a Jiminy spacecraft and I thought about you Wow, like the acoustics sound so great in that drunk tank. <laughs> right? I love the legendary Stardust Cowboy so much. I have way too many legendary Stardust Cowboy records. Because every time I see one, I feel compelled to buy it. Every single time I find it in a used bin, because it's always in the used bin, because everybody tries legendary Stardust Cowboy, and then when they're going through the record collections... Or like, they die. <laughs> when you're going through your record collection, like, okay, which ones am I going to sell this month? Usually legendary Stardust Cowboy ends up going. So now I have like seven legendary Stardust Cowboy records. And a lot of them is like repeating the same songs over and over again. But I love the songs. Like I love Paralyzed. I love uh, Standing in a Trash Can. I love I Hate CDs. It's <laughs> <laughs> He makes a very compelling case against CDs. <laughs> Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Now, even though the deal with Columbia was technically just with Iggy Pop, Iggy still wanted to work with some of the Stooges, or at least the Stooges who shared an interest in heroin. So Iggy and James Williamson went to London. 
Well, yeah, they were they were heroin buddies. And remember, Iggy was not interested in working with Ron anymore as far as songwriting went. Yeah. And so James was the next viable option because uh, he was just very talented. Yeah. And Iggy uh, calls, like goes up to James and he goes, hey, uh, I got this deal. I'm going to go to London. Come with me. And James is like, no. It's <laughs> like, why? Because I got hepatitis. <laughs> I'm like, wow, I didn't know you could get that. Okay. Uh, and then a little bit later, James finally recovered, and then he was ready to go. But the funny thing is, right right before they leave, he calls up Tony DeFreeze and says, like, hey, yeah, 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 I got my ticket. I'm on my way. Uh, uh, James Williamson is also coming. And Tony's like, what? He's yeah. like, no, I got I to work with someone, and I, he understands me. He understands yeah. me. And Tony goes up to, like, David Bowie's like, uh, he's got a friend, and he wants to bring a friend. And Bowie's like, yeah, yeah, just give him what he wants. Yeah. And then they embarked into a little adventure in London. Yeah, a little adventure. I mean, they they stayed there for a while. I mean, that wasn't this the trip where they went and saw David Bowie and Bowie decided to try the walking on the hands thing and then he fell at the Imperial Palace. <laughs> And they also had to stay in like different places. They had to keep moving them around because they kept like, like even the smallest things. Because like they're in Britain right now. Yeah. Like Iggy like spilling like you know cornflakes on a rug, and immediately they have to pack up and leave. <laughs> like they couldn't do anything right. Uh, it was while Iggy and James were fucking around in London that Tony DeFreeze figured it was time to branch out from Jim and start his own management company with Bowie, which came to be called. Main Man. That's right. That's uh, Main Man was made under the Gem um, umbrella. Yeah. Because uh, Tony DeFreeze, who he had a partner, Lawrence Myers, who came up with uh, Gem, they founded Gem together. And Tony wanted to open up offices in the U.S. to have more like a corporate presence, especially because they wanted David Bowie to get huge in the United States. Yeah. I mean, and back then you had to have that. You had to have like a guy, like it wasn't like it is now where you can do every everything from anywhere. Like back then, like you had to have an office in the United States and you had to have an office in the UK. And if you didn't have that, then your artist wasn't going to get heard in those countries. That's right. That's why they called it Main Man because they didn't want to risk their reputation uh, with Gem already. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so they branched out like with other certain singers because remember, they tried this new model of just representing singers and mm -hmm. managing them. So that's why they only wanted Iggy, ah, not the rest of the band. And that's why they represented just Lou Reed. And just David Bowie. Yeah, we've already got David Bowie. Let's just focus on this kind of management where we have a singer and then a bunch of hired guns, essentially. That's, that's exactly it. They hired all these people from the Andy Warhol scene to run the company. Because they met them back when Andy Warhol was like doing his debut of Pork, mm -hmm. uh, the one that he started in New York and then he moved it to London. They all got to know each other there. And so they grabbed like Cherry Vanilla, Tony Zanetta, uh, Lee Childers, like all these guys were running a company. And you know what? They did pretty fucking good. Especially uh, Cherry Vanilla and Wayne County. Yeah, Wayne County. Yeah. They it, did great. Yeah, they did absolutely fucking good. Yeah, and Wayne County ended up uh, releasing some albums like later on in the 70s, which are fine. <laughs> <laughs> they're fine yeah, yeah they're fine yeah they're, they're, fine. they're totally fine everything's fine so after Man Man was launched DeFreeze put together a London gig that featured Iggy Pop doing back-to-back -back nights with one of Main Man's other acts as I said the now solo Lou Reed
thing about Lou Reed performing in London is that Lou Reed was just as fucked up, if not more fucked up, than Iggy Pop at the time. So when James and Iggy went to see Reed on that first night, Reed was so fucked up on liquor and tranks that his pants kept falling down. <laughs> you know, belts. <laughs> yeah, Sequin belts. Yeah, but you're, I don't know, I've forgotten a belt before, and I'm pretty much sober. But it must have been hard, like, if you're playing a guitar and your pants start falling down, your hands aren't free. Yeah. <laughs> and also, like, at this time... James and Iggy are 22 and 24. Yeah. And Lou Reed is hitting 30. So old they're man. probably, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Got an old man on stage, can't even keep his pants up. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is that just like with Jim Morrison, like seeing Lou Reed all fucked up gave Iggy a little bit of confidence. So when Iggy played his first solo show the next night, it was a brooding disturbing performance and it was apparently absolutely inspiring especially to two young musicians in the audience john lydon aka johnny rotten and mick jones founding member of the clash Love the Clash. Yeah, I'm a gigantic Clash fan. I know. Well, well we both are. I mean, that was, yeah, that we first uh, you know, bonded over uh, Spanish bombs yeah. way back when we were first started dating. And Johnny Rotten, uh, I have a funny story about Johnny Rotten, actually. Uh, David Bowie and Iggy Pop, this was a couple years later, they, were, they ran into Johnny Rotten and they started talking to him and telling him, like, uh, what things to do for his career and giving him advice mm. on shit. For those of you who don't know, Johnny Rotten was the lead singer of the Sex Pistols. That's right. And Johnny Rotten just gets up and says, go fuck yourself. <laughs> and walks away. And Ron saw all this happen. And he was just like, that Johnny Rotten, I respect him. <laughs> and had a good laugh. Yeah. And Johnny Rotten has uh, not changed. Not changed. Not changed even a tiny fucking bit. The most constant grumpy ass person ever <laughs> yeah i think he uh didn't he have a freak out at south by southwest like last year yeah yeah the whole yeah. yes the, the whole there was a panel with uh johnny rotten um henry rollins and a couple of others i can't remember who else was there i just remember henry rollins being like okay guys like let's can we all just kind of just just turn it down. Just turn it down a little bit, everybody. I think you can find that online. It's kind of fun. Yeah, it's definitely online. It's very funny to watch. But of course, you know, Donnie Rotten and all the other British punks, they're going to get covered extensively in some of our later episodes. Now, while Iggy was out performing, doing solo shit, Main Man was still trying to figure out who the fuck was going to play on Iggy's record. 
That's right, because Iggy and James, they needed a backing band, you know. Uh, Mayman was just hiring singers at the time, like I said. So they needed a band, but they couldn't find anyone in England. They even held auditions. Like, Iggy did not want to even... He likes to find somebody just like an old friend of a friend or anything like that. He held auditions. He was getting frustrated. He's just sitting there, like, thinking really hard. Who would be right for the Stooges? (laughs) Who... Who, the, Who could possibly... What about the Stooges? <laughs> Th- that's brilliant. So finally, yeah, J- James said, let's get Scott. And then they also got Ron because they're like, well, they come as a package yeah, of brothers. Of course, you can't get Scott without getting Ron. So Iggy called up Ron, and this is three months after Iggy and James left Ann Arbor to England, right? He called up Ron, and he said, hey, man, we tried everybody, so do you want to do it? Which kind of crushed Ron's soul a little bit. Of course, because like, I mean, it it is a bit of a double fuck because (laughs) not only is Iggy calling him up and saying like, hey, I tried to replace you with everybody. We held auditions and uh, not only do I need you to come play, but remember how you were a lead guitarist? Yeah, you're not that anymore. Now you're going to play bass. Because James is taking over. I mean, this is like a Lifetime movie. Yeah. You know, where the woman takes the other woman's husband and her job (laughs) and her friends. Yeah. I I think it's called uh, Friends Forever. It's with Shannon Doherty. (laughs) Watch it. Oh, you have a very specific one in mind. Yeah, and she's in the band, too. (laughs) Yeah. So now it's like, yeah, James Williamson has your job. You're now playing bass. Come do it. What the fuck else are you doing? Iggy's not always a good dude. No. Like, Iggy sometimes is a fucking terrible well, dude. Well, he's like, what is best for the show? Yes. It is it is always what's best for the show, what's best for the band. So, after the Stooges came, they started writing the record. And one day, while Iggy was wandering around Hyde Park, he saw a newspaper with a headline that would inspire a million musicians in the years to come. While the article was fittingly about heroin... Iggy decided to write a song inspired by the headline that was actually about the tactics that the United States was using in the Vietnam War. That song would be the lead track for the Stooges' last studio album of the 70s, Raw Power, and it was called Search and Destroy.
friends till the end. <laughs> That's the name of the movie with Shannon Doherty. <laughs> Glad you were able to pull that one out. <laughs> Thank you. Out of time. Now, when it came time to actually record the album, David Bowie graciously offered to produce it. But Iggy, thinking he knew what was best, instead chose to produce the album himself with James Williamson. And this wasn't, I guess, the worst idea because, you know, when it came to Funhouse, it was their idea to take all the shit out of the studio I could see how he got a little overconfident here because, you know, it it worked the first time. It definitely worked the first time. I mean, even though they weren't producing it, though, that's the problem is that they weren't Don Gallucci was producing. It was just their idea to take all the shit out of the studio itself and just, I guess, set up the engineering. Uh, And that's not the same as producing, really. Yeah, no, it's not. It's It's like when Mel Gibson decided to make movies. Well, that's the thing, is that really when it came to producing, Iggy and James didn't know what the fuck they were doing. And they definitely didn't know what the fuck they were doing when it came to sound engineering. But nevertheless, even though the album has some glaring technical issues because like, of we've it. We've never had those, by the way. <laughs> Just want to say that. No, we, here, we here at Last Podcast Network have never had glaring technical issues with anything we've ever done. <laughs> we've been professional beginning to end. I mean, we're all... It's not like we re-recorded this episode ever. <laughs> yeah, it's not like we taught ourselves how to do all of this at all. <laughs> But even though the album has glaring technical issues, it still features some of the Stooges' best songs. about this record is that unlike Funhouse and especially the Stooges self-titled debut, the songs on Raw Power have a fullness that's in direct contrast to a lot of the dark and dirty but still sparse tracks that came before. But there's still plenty of dark and dirty on this record, particularly on the closing track of Side A, Penetration. <laughs> I can decide 
And people wonder why Iggy Pop has lots of beautiful women throwing themselves at him. <laughs> So hot. Yeah, you think so? Yeah. I mean, on, on this one, like, I kind of feel like it's, uh, I don't know, the, the sexuality on Raw Power feels more desperate than Funhouse. Like, Funhouse, like, the sexiness feels yeah, like, yeah. it feels very effortless and just like, yeah, this is it, man. This is who we are. But, but Raw Power, though, is still sexy. It's still sexy, but it's very, it's very like, <laughs> Yeah, me too. <laughs> Now, even though Bowie didn't produce raw power, his influence is as heavily felt on this record as the Velvet Underground's was on the Stooges' first, and it's felt heaviest on the title track, which could be described, I think at least, as the Stooges' take on Suffragette City. Iggy said in an interview that the main subject of raw power is being near death. No shit. And the incredible inputs of beauty and power that you get when you are near it. I could see it definitely being that. I don't know how it's beautiful when you're shooting up heroin (laughs) backstage in the bathroom. I don't know. There is something beautiful about death. I mean, uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to get. We'll talk about this more in the Joy Division episode. Yeah, we'll definitely, I mean, we're not going to get too goth on this one. Uh, but no, I, I I understand what he's talking about. I mean, it, it is an album on the edge. Desperation, you know, because when you're near death, I would imagine the desperation is pretty fucking high. But speaking of Bowie, the biggest controversy surrounding this album involves the mix. And careful listeners have probably already noted which mix we've been playing. I'm sorry, hold on a second. You said, but speaking of Bowie, after we talked about death, that sounds weird. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about sure. David Bowie's death? <laughs> Later. Oh. <laughs> That'll be episode four. We'll mention it. We won't get into it too deep. Yeah. If you want to like hear more about David Bowie's death, we did a whole episode on last podcast on the left on Bowie and the Occult. That's right. But yeah, that'll come later. Now, as I said, Iggy and James had no idea what they were doing when it came to recording an album. They were ideas men, not necessarily execution guys. Without getting too technical, when an album is recorded, the standard operating procedure is to record each instrument on a separate track. So the sound engineer can mix each instrument together post-recording in whatever configuration strikes their fancy. 
That sounds easy. It, I mean, it's pretty simple. <laughs> I mean, most most people know that. I know some people don't know a whole lot about the recording process, but that's the simplest way to put it. But during the recording of Raw Power, while Iggy had the option to use up to 24 tracks to record each individual instrument, he used three. What? But yet 21 ref- other ones. <laughs> <laughs> what that meant was that you had lead guitar on one track, Iggy's vocals on the second and the rest of the band all crowded together on the third that was rhythm guitar that was bass guitar that was drums that was tambourine that was all the auxiliary percussion that was the piano all of it that goes to show what how iggy pop thought of the rest of the band it really does it's like yeah just throw them over there they'll be fine like because it's it's not that hard to set up more tracks it's really not, you know, and I guess it's a time thing as well where it's just like, yeah, just record them all live, record that all on one track and then it'll be fine. But what this means is that the bass, guitar, drums, keyboard, rhythm guitar from the raw power sessions are eternally fused together in one unmovable track. It was a creative decision. <laughs> it's fucking lazy asshole decision. Don't insult my process. <laughs> <laughs> but what that means is that it makes uh, mixing these instruments fucking impossible. Want more treble on the drums? Great. Now the keyboard's got more treble too. Bass drum a little too boomy? Great. Now the bass guitar sounds like shit. And so on and so forth. And that's why when you listen to the original mix of the album, the instruments jarringly fade in and out. And everything seems wildly out of balance. And the mix that everyone heard when the album was released in 1973 was done by who else but David Bowie, who did the best he could with what he had. And also, David Bowie had only three days to mix it. Jesus. He was touring. He had a busy schedule. You know, he had to move things around. Like, he did the best, what you said, the best he could yeah. with what he had. Yeah. And Iggy fucking hated it. He said, I think he said, that fucking carrot top ruined my album. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was during the Ziggy Stardust days and, you know... Red hair. Everyone's sabotaging your career but you, Iggy. (laughs) You're right. Well, more than 20 years later, in 1996, Columbia Records decided they'd remix the whole thing because this it had become uh, the subject of legend, the mix of raw power. And they, quote-unquote, asked Iggy if he would try his hand at remixing the album himself. Although, from what Iggy says, Columbia pretty much told him, either you do it or we'll find someone who will. And so, in 1996, you had the Iggy Pop mix, which, if we're being honest, is just Iggy Pop turning everything up as loud as he can to the point where everything is totally blown out. Everything's blown out, it's fuzzy, it's crackly, but fuck, man, it works. It works. It's better. <laughs> no, I mean it. Like, uh, like the Iggy mix, I feel like, is better on Gimme Danger, Penetration, Your Pretty Face. Yeah. You know, he takes the vocals to the crackle point, and it just, it just works that way. It just works. Okay, here's where I am with it. I kind of switch back and forth between which one I like more. If I'm listening on speakers or if I'm listening to the record, I gravitate towards the Bowie mix. But if I'm listening on headphones... I'm going to listen to the Iggy mix every fucking time. But part of the reason why the pop mix works is that it gives certain songs in the album that were kind of like dead fishes some much-needed life. And there's no better example of this than Iggy's mix of the sleazy cabaret blues number, I Need Somebody. (laughs) 
And the thing is that, like, it wasn't just Iggy Pop that hated the fucking mix. Everybody in the stew just hated the mix. Oh, yeah. No, they really did. But then later when Ron and Scott heard that Iggy was uh, remixing the album, they thought, great. But then they were told after, you're actually going to like the David Bowie version better. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're going to appreciate David Bowie's mix on this. And then in the end... When they listen to it, they're like, wow, I can't believe how much I love that David Bowie version. <laughs> really love it. Yeah, because, I mean, he did the best he could with what he had. You know, And I understand why some people hate the Iggy Pop mix. I, abso- I absolutely get it because yeah. it really is like it's very fucking crackly. Yeah. Uh, and some people can't stand crackle. They cannot stand any sort of overblown vocals or overblown guitar or anything like that i totally get it but you know it's personal preference Mm -hmm. and that is where we'll pick back up next week for the end of the stooges and the beginning of iggy pop's career as a solo artist all the way to the present day and this next week that's when we're going to be getting into lust for life we're going to be getting into the idiot we'll get into metallic ko a little bit and everything that came after Lust for Life. Absolutely. And we've been listening to the uh, Iggy Pop's latest album, and we've been having a lot of fun watching uh, that music video for, <laughs> what was that song called? Oh, man. It's the one that, like, I know the, Mac, Mac DeMarco. Uh, stay in your lane. Stay in, in your lane. lane. Stay. Check it out. <laughs> it's good. It, it's actually very, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's entertaining. Like, it's very entertaining. It actually made me uh, like the song uh, a little bit better. Album's pretty good. You know, we'll talk more about Iggy Pop's new album on, uh, on part four, and uh, we hope that y'all will join us for it next week. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Whoa, <gasps> what the? Is there a door behind all those spiders? <gasps> <gasps> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. <sighs> look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax, you booked a Verbo. 